Hello, welcome to another Ladies of Landsat and Sisters of SAR fusion episode. Both of our groups here aim to inspire, lift up, and retain underrepresented people in the field of remote sensing and earth observation by increasing the connections and visibility of our members and really showcasing their accomplishments. We welcome scientists and allies of all backgrounds, genders, ages, sexual orientations, ethnicities, social statuses, geographic locations, and abilities. Thanks, Kate. So on today's takeover episode, we'll be debriefing a workshop that we held last month to define an inclusive future for Earth observation sciences and how we could achieve these goals. I'll first introduce myself. I'm Dr. Morgan Crowley. I'm from the United States, but live in Canada now. I just finished my PhD in renewable resources last month at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. In my research, I use optical remote sensing data like Landsat to monitor and characterize wildfires. I primarily use Google Earth Engine for this research, and outside of my research, I am co-director of Ladies of Landsat with Kate. My main focus with Ladies of Landsat has been leading the Manuscript Monday series, where we highlight a cutting-edge remote sensing researcher every week. And now I'll pass to Flavia. Hello, I'm Flavia. I'm from Brazil, and for more than 14 years, I have been accompanying, leading, and managed some projects and products in both private and public sector, using optical and SAR image for land use mapping, monitoring, and modeling. My expertise lies in forests, carbon mainly, agriculture, and land use change in tropical forests. Currently, I'm working in the EO private sector as a remote sensing expert, project and product manager, and a scientific research at the remote sensing applied to tropical environment groups, and I'm a lead organizer for the Ladies of Lancet. And I'm uh, Dr. Kate Figgis. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, but now I call Santa Barbara in Southern California home. I'm a new Mendenhall postdoctoral fellow with the U.S. Geological Survey at Eros, which is home to the Landsat program. And I use dense Landsat time series analysis uh, and other optical data to look at trends in things like climate, land use and land cover change, wetlands, and water quality. I started Ladies of Landsat during my PhD, and now I co-direct the group with Morgan. In Ladies of Landsat, I really try to make it my goal to get more women and other represented groups a seat at the table especially in the decision-making sphere, and now that I'm at USGS, especially in the U.S. federal government. And I'll pass it on to Gopika. Hi, my name is Dr. Gopika Suresh. I was born in a coastal town called Tiruvananthapuram in the south of India in the state of Kerala, and I grew up moving schools and cities all over the coast of India. I moved to Germany to pursue a Master's of Science in 2009, and I've been living here since then and have been dealing with the challenges of an immigrant since then. I am a synthetic aperture radar remote sensing expert. I developed the first automatic system to detect offshore oil slicks from SAR data for my PhD and have developed methods and algorithms for marine and coastal applications, land cover classifications, and disaster rapid mapping from SAR using Python. Most of my career in the field of remote sensing and synthetic aperture radar has been in Germany, except for a brief stint in Singapore in 2020, where I did a postdoc. I joined the organizing team of the Sisters of SAR in April 2020, where I worked with Dr. Laura Dingle-Robertson and Sarah Banks to carry on the mission of the Sisters of SAR, which is to showcase the accomplishments of women in the field of synthetic aperture radar remote sensing. Awesome. Thank you so much, doctors, uh, Dr. Kate, Dr. Flavia, and Dr. Gopika. It's really exciting to have this conversation with you ladies because we had such a wonderful workshop last month and it'll be fun to kind of 
revisit it for everyone listening. Um, in the workshop that we did last month, we used scenario development techniques to explore this idea of what an inclusive future in remote sensing would look like. We did this with a social scientist, Dr. Clara Winkler from McGill University. She led a two-hour session for the four of us with Dr. Krista Straub and Dr. Megan Halibisky as well, who were unable to join us today for the recording. And in this workshop, we discussed how we could reach this inclusive future for the field of Earth observation sciences and remote sensing. We had a series of discussion prompts, and through those, we identified opportunities and barriers for members of the EO community to help achieve a future where diverse scientists are celebrated and supported at all levels, from students to science team members to administrators. This is a really productive method for envisioning futures um, that is often used in the field of sustainability as it basically crowdsources ideas for overcoming hurdles to achieve this future goal. And it's also encouraged to think totally outside of the box. So it's a lot different than kind of when we're talking about opportunities to overcome barriers in the present because we're thinking about this long-term goal in the future. Today we'll be debriefing this workshop and our experiences as four participants. Yeah, we're really excited to share this with the community. We're not going to go into too many specifics about um, the themes or, you know, specific ways forward, but we really want to share what we've been thinking about so maybe the community can respond and get a little bit of feedback. And when we were working through our scenario development, a lot of us had these specific themes that we felt passionate about, although most of the themes, uh, you know, overlapped and were actually much stronger when we considered them together holistically. But today we wanted to, you know, each touch on just some specific examples of the individual themes that spoke to us and discuss them more broadly. So I can get started with something that's been popping up in my professional life quite a bit, and that's hiring practices. And that kind of fell under the theme of what we considered, you know, hiring, training, and education in the field of remote sensing and earth observation. And it's something in private discussions, ladies of Landsat and sisters of SAR have talked quite a bit about. I brought it up, I think, first in a group chat that we had because in the past several months, I've had three separate male colleagues come to me, both as a colleague and a friend, but also as a lady of Landsat, and say they're interested in hiring more women for positions in things like data science, remote sensing, um, sometimes a little bit more computer science. But all three of them, and these are all separate individuals from separate entities, had failed searches when they wanted to hire uh, an underrepresented scientist or a woman because they didn't get any to apply. So we're talking about only white men applying for these positions. And that didn't surprise me much because it's what we've seen for quite a while now in Ladies of Landsat and Sisters of SAR. Uh, it's the shared experiences that we hear from our community members. And it's really the reason why Ladies of Landsat continues forward in our mission statement. I wanted to dive into it a little bit more. And I asked all of them for the theories of why they thought their searches failed. And one main theme that kept popping out was that these men believed that women were actually undereducated as a whole, and therefore were there just weren't simply enough women or qualified women to fill these positions. This is coming from men that I actually respect quite a bit, and they did have the thought to hire more women in the first place. They wanted to make it a more inclusive place. They wanted to ask themselves, who's at our table? There weren't enough women there, and they wanted to change that. But this bias against believing women are undereducated as a whole in Earth observation really bothered me. It's one of the main reasons that we have these groups in Earth observation to try to combat this type of thinking. So I asked, I posed this question to 
ladies of Lanza, ancestors of Sar, you know, the, what's going on here? How is this being perpetuated? And, you know, what came out is, you know, maybe we need to shift here. Women shift the, the, the onus here. Women are doing a lot in the field of earth observation uh, to go through more trainings, to become more educated in things like programming languages, get a more diverse set of skills. They're doing a lot of work. And we know that through our community, we help promote those opportunities. So again, why isn't it that they're matching with these different jobs that come up. I have women who are looking for positions, but can't find them. And then we have these groups, these leaders who are looking for women to fill their positions and they're not connecting. So again, maybe one of the concepts is putting the onus back into those in leadership and potentially asking how they're advertising these positions. One concept is that these job postings are using language from fields where women are traditionally underrepresented, like engineering and computer science. One of the things that we we often see in earth observation and the underrepresented scientists that occupy that space is that they may not be coming from traditional computer science or engineering backgrounds. Many of them do, but then one of the problems becomes, or one of the perceived problems becomes this barrier of programming aptitude. Uh, When I think a lot of us, I think potentially all of us on this call, I've heard say, you know, they learned on the job. Um, I didn't know Python when I started my PhD program, but I learned if that was a barrier to entry in order for me to enter into my doctorate program, I wouldn't have been hired in the first place, but I had all these other amazing diverse skills that I came to the table with. I was an ecologist. I was, you know, a conservationist. I uh, knew these really complex systems. I had um, background in policy and I was able to learn the programming on the job. The advice that I've been giving um, to leaders recently is to maybe shift their language a little bit, steer away from this hardcore drive towards knowing um, several different programming languages um, and seeking candidates that are willing to learn, who have the aptitude to learn, not necessarily the aptitude up front. These are the types of things that we talked about in our scenario development workshop, just sort of laying the groundwork for how things need to change. Yes, Kate, that's a very good, uh, actually, explanation. And I see that the same thing is happening in the private sector, right? You gave a very good review in the, in the public sector regarding institutions and, and so on. But I also think that they need to change the language in the job description, as you said, right? Instead of writing this thousand requirements, you need to know Python, you need to know Java, you need to know this to really try to, to, to catch all the, the, the qualities, right, that a, a candidate can have. And also, in case they, these requirements, they are such an important thing, they should at least put in the, the end of the job advertisement. If you don't meet all the requirements, write us, we can talk, we can learn together, right? We can learn into the process of the job. So I think that's a very interesting thing because it's also happening a lot in the private sector right now in the in the earth observation. And we see a lot like on the community saying that oh, we need people who everyone who is in the remote sensing needs to, to program and everyone needs to have to know how to, to write this and write that. And which is not true because we know that the remote sense is much more than programming, right? We also have the communication with clients. You also have the management of teams. And it goes much further than only programming. I want to give a shout out to Planet because they just posted a bunch of jobs recently. And one of the things that they had at the bottom was 
if you don't see yourself in any of these positions, send us your resume. We might have the perfect position for you. And I think that more employers need to think like that way because you could be really overlooking so much talent and potential to learn by just having these fixed boxes, especially for like long-term positions where people move around and work on different projects. And there's obviously times where you need that, you know, back-end developer who's fluent in whatever language, but a lot of what we're doing is all theory applied. And if you have that broader knowledge, it just totally enhances the science and products. These are all such good points. And I really wish employers would give feedback to those that they are rejecting, because if there's something that they're really looking for, I wish they would just tell them, tell people that we're looking for this particular skill in your CV so that people could actually work on it and probably get another, their dream job. I really wish that feedback was given for every single application, whether it was accepted or whether it was rejected. Yeah, excellent point, Gopika. I I think the a hard piece of feedback might be though, if someone said, well, we didn't hire you because your resume is stacked with all these amazing research opportunities that you've had, but you don't know four different programming languages. For me, it's a global shift that needs to happen from you know the leadership down I agree with Morgan. There are some positions where it's, you need it. I mean, that's, that's the professional world that you're operating in, but I would imagine, and I I've heard this feedback from the same male colleagues. You hire somebody who has their nose to the grind in a programming language, but they don't necessarily have the skills to think creatively that we need to in an interdisciplinary science, like earth observation. And then when you have folks, um, you know, promoting this concept that you have to have a programming language down, otherwise you're not supposed to be in the field of remote sensing, that clues into representation, feelings of isolation, feelings of loneliness, feeling like you don't belong. And then not a joke, a lot of women will give up and stop pursuing careers in earth observation because they see that type of language happening and it needs to stop. Yeah, it's so random. Like, I feel this way all the time. Like, I feel like such an imposter sometimes in programming, even though I'm in a computational landscape ecology lab, even though I use Google Earth Engine for all of my research, but I don't identify as a programmer first. So then, like, am I not, like, is that not a skill? But it is. It's just, like, I would call myself an ecologist or a knowledge synthesizer or something. And I feel like a lot of us can fall into that when you're working in the science of it all. Like, programming is the tool, you know, that you get there. And yeah. And in my opinion, it's the easiest tool to learn. And maybe I'll, I'll get some backlash for that, but I think the harder skills is thinking holistically about the world, a domain knowledge of wildfires, carbon, oil slicks, wetlands and water quality. Those are things that you actually do have to spend years working on and understanding programming. There's beautiful opportunities for trainings, textbooks, colleagues looking over your shoulder uh, at your code teaching you that's that's a quicker learn than domain science in my opinion yes and if the title and programming thing is the only thing between you getting a job or postdoc position think twice before you accept this position yep yep and i must say that even if you're a programmer there's still hundreds of hurdles that you have to cross before you actually can get a good job. So even if you had that programming skill like I do, you would still be rejected for who knows, many different things. And without feedback, you'll never know what's missing. Sometimes some jobs are not for you. Sometimes jobs just are given away because you're not what they're looking for. Absolutely. Which is a whole other can of worms, Gopika, which I think that 
hopefully you're going to talk about here. Definitely, Kate. Let me just get right into it then. It seems like academia really rewards those with larger number of publications and citations in high impact journals, which also leads to higher H indices or matrices. Um, however, scientists and researchers from developing countries and underfunded institutions, they cannot afford to publish in high impact journals. It's just way too expensive. So that means they're not going to have these certain number of publications that everybody in academia seems to want in high impact journals, which means that they will never succeed if this is how you select people. And it's also known that researchers with non-Western sounding names are cited less than those with Western sounding names. This makes it, again, harder for researchers from underrepresented parts of the world to succeed in the system. Women are often cited much lesser than men and women who choose to take parental leave. And then this is something personal now being a new mother. Women who decide to have a child and who take parental leave or those who don't, they have to deal with peer reviews. They have to deal with grant deadlines, award deadlines, on top of trying to bring a new child into this world without even having any childcare support. How do you expect somebody in this field to accomplish so much while dealing with all of the challenges that underrepresented people in our field experience and have to go through and face every day? What if we start rewarding societal impacts like capacity building of local communities or uplifting of underrepresented communities and not just reward those with a certain number of high impact publications? What if we start extending deadlines for new parents to support them instead of stressing them out? What if we start thinking about helping those in our field rather than setting up hurdles? Govika, I think you laid that out so excellently. It goes back to why we're doing this scenario building, scenario development workshop, because these are things that feel so close to tangible. Like, why can't we just reward these, these other alternative measures of success rather than publications. And I think we're up against a system that's, that rewards itself. It's a positive feedback cycle. So I know not everyone loves the word patriarchy, but that's the system we've been operating in for a long time in the field, in all fields of STEM and especially remote sensing and earth observation, which has taken a little bit of time to catch up because it's a fairly new field too but it rewards those either consciously or unconsciously who are able to publish more Then they stay in power. And then they use that to make sure that publications are the measure of success and then so on and so forth. And it never ends. So sometimes it can feel overwhelming. I see some progress here. I am so impressed by so many underrepresented scientists, including the ones on this call and what they're doing in their local community and internationally to make sure that it's not necessarily driven by white papers. It's driven by how are you impacting those on the ground? And absolutely. And I think Kate, this takes us to a good, interesting also um, input here, which is the local collaboration and Climate change will mainly affect the underrepresented groups. So they need to have a voice in the solution. Not only need to have a voice in the solution, but they need to be part of the solution. They need to be the one who is making the solution, creating the solution. If not, there will be again colonialism, telling them what they should do. But there is a positive movement within the public sector. We have some university institutions, initiatives like the Ladies of Landsat, Sister of SARS, uh, who are including these local communities, right? But the needs to take on a large and more active scale. So including local people and local community is not only about checking and producing welfare. Okay, they go there, they do a field work and they check if this 
if this was a deforestation or if this wasn't a deforestation. But it's much more than that. Having an exchange of knowledge that would directly benefit locals' community. And if this sounds to you too complicated, you can easily start with something very simple. You're gonna do a work in the Amazon, contact people from the Amazon. Local institutions, government, people from there, indigenous community, very simple. Are you gonna publish a paper regarding the DCM impact in Mozambique, regarding the carbon credits? Contact people from Mozambique. Research jointly and do everything together. This is the easiest way to start to include local communities. After that, you can really go through into more layers and go into how you can really exchange the knowledge between you and the local community and so on. But you can start only doing that. Could you remind our listeners about the RSATE group that you're involved in that we spoke about with Dr. Pollyanna Bispo a couple of weeks ago? Because as we said on that interview, you all are really changing the game in terms of knowledge incorporation. Yes, thank you very much, Morgan. So yes, Pollyanna is the leader of this group, amazing ladies, and I know everyone listened to her podcast here. And so she had this idea, actually, because uh, we are seeing a lot of these uh, colonialists, what we call science colonialists, which are, for example, these people who are publishing papers about the tropical forests in Brazil or in Indonesia or in Mozambique. And when you see the authors, there is almost no one from the local community. So it's kind of that they are creating the policies, they are doing the monitoring, they are creating the knowledge without any contact to anyone of local communities. So we thought, okay, we need to have our space there because we also can contribute. So I can give you a very simple example. I have seen a lot of projects uh, in, the, in the public sector and also in the private sector where I am now where they, they, they are having a product regarding deforestation or soil moisture or carbon credits and they don't include anyone from Brazil or from Mozambique or from India, for example. And this even make the work, let's say a little bit slower and not so effective. Once you have someone that understands what is a deforestation area in Amazon and what is a dry season effect, for example, in the satellite image, you can completely like misunderstood if you don't know the difference between of them. And then you are sending an alert in a product to a company to a government, which makes completely no sense. There is also a very interesting initiative in Brazil. The name is Meninas da Geo, which means more like, like uh, girls from Geo. And they are really doing a great work in the Pará state in Brazil, where we have like most of the Amazon biome. And they are exchanging the knowledge between the leadership of, of indigenous communities who are mostly women, so they are teaching the woman how to use GIS to implement them and how they are managing their land in this indigenous community. They are there. They are the one who knows everything, not us. That's awesome, Flavia. Thank you so much for sharing that. It, and we see like this with Severe, you know, working with on capacity building and collaboration and co-development. They're just there are so many amazing organizations working at that this that it does go back to you know Gopika's point about pressure to publish because a lot of folks can't take that moment to take a step back and say, should I be publishing this? Can I get someone else involved? But when there's that pressure, then you just 
get the paper out. It's so easy with our observation sciences, as, as Kate mentioned on the last podcast, you know, we get an image from anywhere in the world, we can analyze it, it may be right or wrong, but we can publish it probably if we if we write a compelling story and, and taking that step back and thinking about who you're working with is so important. I would say even in the United States where the earth observation community has done a huge disservice to its indigenous um, and tribal communities where travel is not a barrier to making sure that we're working with these communities. And we hear from like our colleague, Nikki Tooley uh, from the Navajo Nation that oftentimes capacity development is done in the form of here's a training, here's what we think you need, go for it. And then that's it. And communities say, well, we never actually asked for that. You never asked us what we wanted and you didn't leave us any tools to actually implement this for, you know, environmental justice, for climate hazard monitoring, that kind of thing. So it it really has to be so intentional, I think is the thing. And it can be so easily unintentional in remote sensing. One single satellite image anywhere in the world can make a huge impact. Brings me, I guess, to my next kind of um, the last kind of theme that we'll talk about. We are very lucky because we all have this shared vision for the future, and we're able to have these conversations that maybe for some people listening, they've never been able to talk about these things with someone else. They've never been able to share these ideas. It can really feel sometimes that you're working against the current when you're trying to achieve change in the field and work towards these goals. But I would say from my experience in the recent years, we are seeing more and more companies and organizations making diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice a main part of their mission um, so they can have communities that are more inclusive and diverse. One shout out that I'll give because they've been really supportive of Ladies of Landsat for many years is Google Earth Engine Outreach. This has been since, you know, Kate and I met at the Earth Engine User Summit in 2018 when they really shared our platform with Kate and bringing together the Ladies of Landsat and other folks who are at the summit together in person to connect. And another amazing organization for that would be Forestat, where in 2018, we had a meetup as well. And all of these groups, the people who have given us these opportunities and shared their platform with us, they know that even more amazing science come and innovation comes out of a diverse community that has these variety of ideas and experiences who they can connect and work together. So it's really important for us to achieve a more inclusive future. It can't just be us, you know, on this call. It can't just be another one person and it really has to be our active allies who are working together on this with us. We have to have this shared vision for the future that supports all of these underrepresented scientists and that supports diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. And we need to see this at every conference, every workshop, every company, and every meeting um, where it's not just, you know, mantles uh, or wannels, you know, all men panels or all white people panels. That just can't happen anymore. That's not representative of everyone who's in the community. And so a big shout out that Gopika and Flavia will be moderating an amazing session next month at the Living Planet Symposium. And it will be in the Agora session on Tuesday. So listen, we'll provide more information and the resources for you to join. Um, that also is why it's so important to have professional and personal networks um, like ARGs or organizations and women plus in geospatial, um, geolatinas, geochicas, the, the list can go on and on, women in GIS. Um, those folks are working one-on-one to connect people, but also are having this broader impact. It feels overwhelming at times. I think I've said this multiple, <laughs> at multiple points during this call because it's hard to know how to reach all of the folks who need a support system, but you know that it's needed because every time we have one-on-one conversations or a larger group call with a new group, they say, 
Oh my gosh, thank you for providing a space like with Sisters of SAR or Ladies of Lanza or these other groups. I've never heard anybody talk about it candidly, these things candidly. And I also don't, I'm not quite sure how aware the larger community is that's not made up of underrepresented groups that that these things are still going on, biases, sexual harassment, uh, and blatantly so. It's still not subtle. Without Morgan for a lot of years, my life would have been a lot harder. It would have felt a lot lonelier. And now with all these women, I feel so empowered. It has to be so intentional. And we have so much momentum and so many beautiful people working on it. And I mean, beautiful on the inside, you know, with with these intentions that uh, I'm hopeful, but it needs a larger group. Kate, what you just now said, it's basically you empower us, we empower you, and this is exactly what needs to happen in our community. And you touched on something that I'd like to talk about, about underrepresented people and how, you know, we need to hear their stories. But unfortunately, we are not able to get all the stories together because some of them are just unreachable. We are really active on Twitter, but a lot of the people in the developing parts of the globe are still not on the Twitter world. Morgan, you mentioned that we are going to be moderating this panel at the Living Planet Symposium, but unfortunately, because of COVID, travel has become so difficult that uh, regretfully, very few people are going to be able to make it to the Living Planet Symposium, and it's going to be mainly Europeans or maybe a few from the North American continent who will come. So again, we're not going to be able to hear the voices of underrepresented people in our community. We wish it was a hybrid session, but uh, unfortunately, we're only going to be able to hear the voices of the people who are going to be there, who have the privilege of getting vaccinated with vaccines that are recognized in the EU, and who have the money to travel. And so how do we reach out to the people who need to be talked to and who, whose voices need to be heard? Yeah, we've learned so much in the last two years of the pandemic. How can we just ignore all of what we've learned and all the innovation we've done? You know, like we were able to have virtual networking events with the GeoMixer that we all helped organize. Like we were able to have these virtual hybrid conferences and then all of a sudden we don't offer them anymore. You know, we were able to connect globally with people that we wouldn't have otherwise and been able to work with people that we wouldn't have otherwise. People were able to attend conferences who wouldn't have been able to attend because of the increased costs to travel or visa difficulties and we can't go back to that world. We've learned so much. How can you forget it? And I think in that case, we should highlight the Earth Engine SG, which I think Sabrina is organizing this week. And it's super nice concept because it's totally hybrid. So you could see people that are speaking and the virtual audience could also engage. So it was extremely inclusive and diverse. Uh, this event is happening now in Singapore. So this is the best example how we can really make an event more diverse and inclusive and really hear all the areas from all over the roads and how they are using Uber engine in academia, industry, public sector, and non-governmental organizations. That's wonderful, Flavia. Thanks for sharing that. And I want to give a highlight to... Um, Cheryl Rose Reyes, who will be organizing a session at the ISPRS World Congress in um, June, and it will be similarly hybrid for women in remote sensing. So it is really exciting to see folks, you know, there can be these in-person talks, but then, you know, why not have invitation, invited speakers who either send a, submit a video or who can, you know, log on Zoom. We've been using Zoom for how many years right now? There's so much opportunity for that. 
So I'd like to kind of talk about maybe what does this inclusive future look like to you? What words come to mind? For me, first and foremost, is collaboration, um, working together with everyone. Yeah, for me, I think it's not only emphasizing training for individuals like mentoring women, but really asking for the responsibility of the alliance, right? Because we can train ourselves forever, but if we don't have a change, like a really active alliance where I, we are able to change the system, we can do 10,000 mentoring programs that we're not going to reach there. The future for a more inclusive uh, earth observation sector is definitely uh, asking for uh, active uh, support from our alliance. Inclusive future for me is having diversity at our leadership levels. And like Flavia said, our active allies. Before we just got on this call, Flavia and I were um, commiserating with each other about the, the fear of children and, and aging and career. And Morgan and Gopika were comforting us. But it's something that we have maybe within our peer communities. But I still don't see at our leadership levels, I have a hard time going and finding leadership who would say something similar that Morgan and Gopika told Flavia and I, it's, it's going to be okay, whatever it may be. So many things come up in life. And without that lack of empathy and kindness and a diverse perspective from the top down, it really limits who stays in earth observation. So maybe we do really great at recruiting underrepresented scientists, but they might you know, be out the door as soon as something comes up and they're not supported in everyday life. Uh, and that's what we're living right now. So really for me, I hope that we have this, we have this future where everybody's supported. We're not working within a system that only rewards a very certain uh, subset of folks that have been dominant in this field for decades now. And I don't have a word or two, but I have a sentence where I'd say my inclusive future is one where research groups are international or global, they're multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary, where we know and include remote sensing experts in every part of the globe and from every sphere of our earth system in our research. So I imagine getting into work, knowing who to call if you're dealing with, let's say, biomass in the Antarctic, or if you're dealing with algae bloom in the Black Sea, and you include somebody from there. And if you don't know how to program, you have somebody on the team who is there and passionate about programming, and everybody's included in your publication, where recognition is really given based on fairness and without any bias. That's my inclusive future. Awesome. Man, now I have to add to mine. It's taken a couple of years, but like, I love what I do and I love who I work with. And I wish that everyone could have that in their day to day to feel safe and secure, to be able to talk to their, you know, supervisors about what they need. We're humans first and science is what we do. And like that makes us better scientists by having these, you know, unique perspectives and experiences and what a wonderful conversation. There's so many resources that we can link in the episode information that will be provided from Seen From Above. Um, as always, we're so grateful to Alistair and Andrew for sharing their platform with us. I mean, hello, that's example number one for active allies, things you can do. People can learn more about some of the things that we've talked about, like 
if you want to have avoid a, a manal or a wannal, check out the Women Plus and Geospatial Speaker Database. If you want to learn how you can be an active ally with tangible actions, check out Sisters of SARS website. If you you know want to learn about cutting edge research, um, you know you can check out the SAR stars. You can check out the Ladies of Landsat Manuscript Mondays. There's Geolatinas Fridays. There's so many incredible resources that um, we'll just try to start linking for you. First and foremost, follow us on Twitter and we'll share this information with you. Follow Sisters of SAR, follow Ladies of Landsat, and we'll try to make these ideas more accessible to you. So thank you, ladies, so much for this conversation. <laughs> I am so grateful to you all. I can't express that enough. You create a safe and secure environment to exist in Earth observation, and that is invaluable. Thank you all. You are wonderful human beings. Thank you, ladies. And back to you, Alistair and Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like way ahead of the curve. Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.